Welcome to a special edition of Breaking Badness. In this bonus episode, you'll hear from Jeff Horn, Chief Security Officer at Order. Co-host Tarek Sala and myself sat down with Jeff to cover trends in offensive security, career advice, and CISO scapegoating. This bonus episode of Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to our special edition of Breaking Badness, recorded on August 28th, 2020. With us today, Jeff Horn, Chief Security Officer at Order. Today, we're hoping to pick his brain on career advice, trends in offensive security, and much, much more. We're also joined by Domain Tools Senior Security Engineer and Malware Researcher, Tarek Sala. And of course, I'm your host for the day, Kelsey LaBelle. So with that, First of all, most importantly, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. We are so excited to have you on today. I'm excited to be here. This is great. And I would love, you know, just spoiler alert. We saw something really cool when we had the opportunity to chat with Jeff um, over a Zoom-like meeting for the benefit of our listeners to describe your background because it is fantastic. Sure. Um, I was kind of always into computers, so I... I got my first computer when I was uh, about 13. Um, it was a 486-66DX2, and I just tore it apart. I mean, it was, <laughs> I will say it was a piece of crap, um, and I just constantly had to keep it going. And so that really kind of taught me a lot about uh, computer internals. I um, played video games a lot and, you know, would love to mess with video game memory and so that kind of got me into the reverse engineering a little bit, you know, giving myself a million uh, gold and Diablo 2 was was definitely a nightly occurrence for me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was it was one of those things that it was always it's always been a passion of mine. And, you know, from a career perspective, I was actually hired out of high school um, to work at a company in Atlanta called Internet Security Systems. And I started my my job there as a, well, man, it was like a Perl and a little bit of C um, writing installers for Windows and Solaris um, for the like the Internet scanner, database scanner and real secure products. But that was really short lived. Um, and then that migrated me into doing vulnerability analysis, mainly just doing patch differentials and then writing or um, editing uh, exploits. Uh, mainly for Windows and Solaris again. And, uh, and then, yeah, when Internet Security Systems went out and tried to buy a or bought a, uh, an antivirus, they sat me down for a year and had me reverse engineer pretty much all of the major AVs out there, you know, both from a detection capability, um, but also just, you know, novel pieces of malware. And uh, that led me into um, joining Webroot Software, where I was there. Uh, director of threat research and advanced research and help build their AV functionality on top of their spy sweeper product. And then that led me into working at Acuvant where I was doing uh, incident response. I was running the malware incident response practice and the advanced uh, research practice. Um, and so I got to work, you know, kind of during the height of uh, incident response and breach analysis. And then that kind of started a turning point in my career um, you know, as a CISO. So during the incident responses, I was, I was definitely, um, I was definitely working with 
executive teams, board of directors. And in some cases, I was kind of like an interim CISO uh, for long-lived projects. So after Acuvon, I actually ran uh, security at SpaceX. So I had um, the information security team and the physical security team reporting to me there. Um, after my stint at SpaceX, I moved to Optiv, which had, it was back here in Denver. I moved from, from Denver to LA and then from LA back to Denver. Um, and I ran security for Optiv. And then I also was a CIO, uh, CISO at a small defense contractor named Bolden. We worked with the intelligence community, which was extremely fun. And then I started as the chief security officer here at Order in March. Um, and then intermingled in there, I, you know, I've been on the Black Hat Review Board since 2014. And I've also been a private investigator since I was 17, but run my own private investigation business kind of on the side. I love how you just casually dropped being a PI at 17 at the end of your <laughs> your background there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, so it did. I mean, it kind of came naturally. My my father was a private, a licensed private investigator and owned his own practice. So, I mean, it wasn't. It. I mean, it wasn't too stellar. I mean, I didn't have to do anything crazy. I just got licensed under my dad's business, and then once I moved out of the house and then came to Colorado, I decided to spin up my my own practice. And really, I I only use it for database access. So, being a PI gets you access to, you know, some of the really tasty, uh, <laughs> uh, um, like, uh, OSINT, uh, databases from a aggregation source perspective. Well, then it's just the cliched family business then, isn't it, Jeff? It <laughs> absolutely you. is. Yeah. <laughs> like my dad owns a dealership. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And I love the, the brief stint at SpaceX too. You can say then that you've had more than worldly experience. I oh, mean, it, it was out of this level. world. Uh, <laughs> oh, but I, excellent. <laughs> SpaceX was awesome. Like it was, uh, it, it was great. It was definitely a dream of mine. My uh, grandfather actually worked um, uh, for NASA at uh, during the Apollo mission, so he helped with some of the uh, the lunar lander stuff. And so I, I had kind of had that in my family, and I always looked up to NASA, and um, and so yeah, working at SpaceX and. I was there for the first uh, first landing, which was awesome, and worked on the Falcon Heavy project, and yeah, it was it was it was great. Wow, that's incredible. Amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. And I am curious too, going back to the PI and your background, how has that shaped your your security strategy and how you carry out investigations? Yeah, I mean, I would say that you know my investigations from a PI perspective are one hundred percent based on the computer. And, you know, I will say that during my, um, my career at, uh, at Acuvon, um, I, I definitely ran a program that did, um, OS intelligence. So like open source intelligence gathering on primarily executives. So, you know, it was one of those things that it exposed me to how much information is, is out there. And then on top of that, how little people know in terms of how much information is out there, particularly with, you know, I mean, people still have face or sorry, MySpace accounts out there that they just don't know about um, with really old pictures that are incriminating. So it's uh, it's it's definitely from like the OSN um, perspective, it's 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 definitely shaped my how did a breach happen and you know was it something that was targeted and if it was something that was targeted was there information pulled from resources that are openly available on the web in order to make it successful 
Wow, I don't even know if Tom from MySpace still has an account, so I'm going to go uh, check in on myself and make sure that <laughs> <laughs> that evidence, for many reasons, does not exist. What? So, like, I was thinking about Tom the other day, and, like, what a great guy that dude was. Like, he just, he friended everybody, and then he made a ton of money, and then bailed, and, you know, didn't spy on anybody. I mean, it was just, you know... It was the simpler times. Simpler got out times. the right time. We'll forget about the little uh, XSS worm in MySpace, but it was a simpler time. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I, uh, a funny story about MySpace. There was a, a contest to win a TV, and I think it was like Devil May Cry 4 when it came out. And, uh, and yeah, so I, to win the contest, you had to link people to, uh, to a website that had a GUID that was specific to you in order to get the most kind of visits to their website. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah, I definitely exploited that on MySpace with, uh, <laughs> celebrities. Oh, they, they shut down the contest. I was, I was so <laughs> high above everybody else. Um, that's hilarious. That's, that is I, fantastic. I, I wanted that TV though. <laughs> well, did you get the TV or did they, uh, they caught on to you, didn't they? Well, they, so they caught on to me and then they, they, they called me and they said, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, Oh, well, I just put this code up on, you know, a couple of celebrities, you know, MySpace pages the day before their birthday. And then I knew they were going to get like millions of hits. Um, but I was also running at the time a, uh, a tour exit node for um, kind of threat, threat, threat intelligence purposes. <laughs> so this is going. if people were using my, uh, my tour exit node, um, I was also throwing up an iframe that made them visit that thing every web page they got. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. That is a great MySpace story. <laughs> Not that there's such thing as a bad MySpace story, though. To be honest, they're no. all they're all pretty good. Um, I'm, MySpace should come up more on our podcast. Art. We should take note. <laughs> you know what? Uh, Jeff's giving me a little bit of a to do list after this podcast. I need to go look for uh, MySpace artifacts for me back in the day. Oh boy. Sorry, just doing that right now, Tarek. Am I... <laughs> I gotta get to it before you do. Um... Kelsey, I'm gonna put you in my top ten. Didn't they? Wasn't that oh, part of the thing? The top ten? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are going absolutely. down memory lane. Jeez. Yeah. That was really that was are. a good feature too, where it's like, I wish I could top ten on like you know Facebook. That's I know, true. right? <laughs> put people in their place. You know, if you messed up, you popped off somebody's top ten. You're like, I was there yesterday. What did I do? Oh gosh. Um, well, getting back to your background there, Jeff, I'm curious, you know, you, you did a great job of running through your career progression, but what do you think really drove you towards that current position as a CSO? I think a lot of people are, are looking to understand how they can continue in their own career. So I think it might be helpful to share that with our audience. For sure. So from, from the get go, when I was doing vulnerability analysis and then, um, you know, writing and, and, and then sometimes and editing exploits largely. Um, I, I was just on a solo mission in my cube at internet security systems and, and then also too at, at, at Webroot software. So the, the amount of dedication reverse engineering took, um, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, smashing the stack and format string vulnerabilities. I mean, you were literally just, you know, it was as easy as grabbing some source or, you know, throwing something. Uh, into Ida or, you know, I, I mean, I was a huge soft ice fan when it was out. Um, so I, you know, I would look at it and, and, you know, just look for like stir copies and, and things like that. And it was simple. Um, but then when it started changing, 
Um, I, you know, I would say that when the, when the heap started becoming a lot more difficult to use, <laughs> um, from an exploitation perspective, like, like Matt Miller's talk on, you know, changes to the heap and, um, my good friend, Chris Valasek and John McDonald did a, a great talk on low fragmentation heap, um, utilization, but you know, it was, it started becoming really difficult. And so I was always able to kind of talk to people and um, I, I understood kind of the business risk behind research. And then I also, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that anybody can reverse engineer and, you know, write an exploit. But the thing that differentiates the good versus the, you know, the inexperienced is, is really just time. So it gave me a really good handle on managing researchers or teams of researchers um, in order to figure out how much time something should take and when to pull people back um, when it became too risky because, you know, you don't want an inexperienced researcher spending, you know, four years to come up with one bug and Apache or something. Um, so I would say that that, you know, the ability to, to kind of really talk to people, uh, frame it in a business sense, and then also trying to figure out time values um, and, you know, relative to, you know, how how long something should take or how difficult something is going to be from a you know security perspective uh, really kind of pushed me to the CISO role. Absolutely. And I just had a horrible realization come into my head or a pun, I should say a punny realization, a groany realization. But do you think they call people well-seasoned because the person that came up with that idiom was punning off of the word time? Is that what happened? <laughs> That's my new theory. This is just coming to me in this moment. I right. think that's what must have happened. Uh, but that's incredibly helpful advice. And I think that's what we're hearing more and more. And I'd like to get into that a little bit more later. Um, but something else that's incredibly clear from talking to you, not just from your MySpace days, but just uh, you're an incredibly knowledgeable person from a technical standpoint. So has it been difficult for you to step away from all of your work in the weeds to be a CSO? I mean, it has, um, but I, but I would say that it's more longing than anything else. Um, you know, I, I look at researchers now and, you know, the, the things that they have to overcome, you know, finding a vulnerability, I, 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 I don't feel is terribly difficult, uh, particularly with just some of the, um, you know, the tools that are available in terms of fuzzing and things, but, but really exploiting that vulnerability is sometimes absolutely impossible. And so, you know, I look back on it longingly in the sense of like, oh, well, that was fun. Um, but then I take a look at how difficult it is to get past, you know, NX, uh, DEP, ASLR, and then, you know, application specific heap utilization. And then realize that, you know, the, the security researchers that are really doing that and in the weeds, not only are they, you know, I, I would say that I specialized in an OS. Um, but now not only do they have to specialize in an operating system or, you know, uh, an architecture like, you know, X64 or MIPS or ARM, but now they've got to have a specialty to an application. And so um, I'm kind of glad I got out, <laughs> at least with the par <laughs> part of my sanity. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot to manage. And Tarek, I'm sure you've experienced that <laughs> quite a bit in your role. Absolutely. You know, I think Jeff hit the nail on the head there. And Really, it's, it's kind of evolved into uh, beyond cat and mouse where, you know, it's teams of researchers nowadays, really, um, to, to be able to conquer and find a lot of these 
kind of prolific uh, zero days. So it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. And we'll we'll definitely talk more about that later. Of course. Something I'm realizing we forgot to do because we were just so excited to talk about your PI background is play our game Two Truths and a Lie. Yes. Oh, all right. <laughs> yes. And so as, as um, our audience knows, whenever we have a guest on, we victimize them by making them come up with uh, three statements about themselves. And um, you get to share with us now, and then we'll guess at the end so we can try to get to know you better. And hopefully Tarek and I can uh, rack up some points here on the point board. But I have a feeling, Jeff, you're pretty good at this. So I'm I'm a little concerned for us, Tarek. <laughs> yeah. This is actually the first time I've ever played. So <laughs> he's a two truths and a lie shark. I can feel it. Yeah, he's playing possum <laughs> with us. I don't know about this. <laughs> All right, Jeff, take it away. All right. So the, f- the first one's sad. Um so when I was in kindergarten, my house burned down and the entire school came together and donated clothes and, and really helped my, my family out. So that's the, that's the first one. Uh, the second one is that I used to do uh, stand-up comedy. And the third one is that I've played guitar since I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. Ooh, I good. love these. These are really good. Yeah. Okay. All Easy. right. We're going to have to think on this. Tarek, just come up with a situation where uh, I feel like guitar players sing sometimes. So just start like humming a melody. And if Jeff sings along, we'll, we'll have him cornered. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, whoops. Did I say that out loud? Oh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't want to get a copyright strike, um, but I'm totally down for singing some Mariah Carey or something. Oh yes. <laughs> I'm so glad that that was your go-to. You know what? <laughs> I have, I have my answer. I, I I'm going to say, mm, I'm going to say the lie is the, uh, the sad one. I'm going to go with the, uh, I'm going to go with the sad oh, one. Wow. Tarek. Yeah, well, I know. I'm going to be a little unorthodox. I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to my hat here because I want I want to give Jeff time to present his full self to us. And I think I think we'll get it out of him. But (laughs) that would be a pretty baller trip up for us, I think. So I'm Tark. I'm kind of siding with you right now. We'll see how the episode goes. (laughs) He's he's hilarious. I I could fully see him doing stand up comedy and uh you know, musically, Mariah Carey, come on. <laughs> She's the so- songbird of a generation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Tarek, I know that you had some questions here. And like I said, Jeff, we're going to come back to you at the end. And I mean, Tarek has already laid down the, the law there with his guests, but I'm going to I'm going to ponder a little bit more on my end. Perfect. Yeah. OK, cool. So, you know, I love hearing about your. Um, experience and your your technical depth and breadth on the exploit side of the house. I think it's so fascinating and super insightful. And so I love that we have a chance to actually talk about this stuff too. Um, I guess I want to start off on a very high level. So Jeff, like what are your thoughts on the latest developments with bug bounty programs and how they've kind of evolved? And then, you know, maybe like a second to that is, um, are the payouts of bug bounty programs, at least modern ones, really like worth it for the work involved and and the financial gain that researchers get from it. Um, I'm going to get in trouble here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, please. No. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, you know, are the payouts uh, uh, high enough? I, I mean, in some cases, but I would say largely no. 
um, you know, particularly given the, the work that goes into them. And so, you know, from a bug bounty program, um, you know, one of the things that scares me about bug bounty programs is, you know, how people could game the system. And, you know, what I'm thinking about is particularly like finding, you know, finding bugs in commonly used libraries um, and that either the bug exists in the library itself or the bug exists in the way that companies usually implement the library incorrectly. I mean, have you ever heard the concept of uh, Cobra farming? Yeah, no, let's uh, actually that's great. Let's go ahead and give uh, give you the chance to kind of describe what Cobra farming is and how it kind of relates to exploit dev. Okay. Um, so this is a story I think goes back a couple hundred years in, in India where the government was having, there was a problem with cobras and the government started a essentially a bounty program on cobras. And so for every cobra that was killed, um, they would give, uh, you know, give the, the, the people money, um, per cobra head, but they had to show it. Um, and so that worked and there all of a sudden was a cobra shortage and a lot of people kind of got out um, of trying to go out in the woods and find cobras and, you know, get it to the government. So people actually started farming cobras and, you know, they would raise <laughs> a ton of cobras and then they, you know, show them to the government. Hey, you know, I need I need, uh, you know, money for this. <laughs> and it kind of exacerbated the problem because the, the government subsequently found out about it and stopped paying them. And then all of a sudden, everybody that was farming cobras just released their cobras again. And it just caused more problems. And oh, so man. how this equates to bug bounty programs is, you know, if you find if you find a bug in let's say a third party library or something that's utilized by a lot of organizations and that or those organizations all have bug, bug bounty programs, you know, it would, it would be in your best interest from a monetary perspective to code that exploit or describe that vulnerability in a way where, you know, it affects that third party library. And obviously you use that third party library to get in, but you've messed around and obfuscated it enough in order to make it like, Hey, this is an application specific thing, um, from an obscure perspective. And then basically use that, you know, use that bug over and over and over again as much as you can with other companies that have similar bug bounty programs. And, um, I definitely, I've definitely seen it happen. Um, but yeah. that's, that's one way that you can kind of game the system. And, um, you know, I think why the payouts are probably <laughs> as low as they are. Sure. So do you really, uh, uh, that's super insightful too. Do you think that the onus really is on these bug bounty programs and the, you know, the organizations behind them to kind of do a better effort of either recognizing deduping or recognizing this, you know, exploit obfuscation and kind of gaming of the system? Um, do you think there's just like not enough resources or awareness around, you know, the Cobra farming uh, scenario that you talked about? I think the bug bounty programs are doing a, a good job. Um, and they, this is something that they definitely look for. But, you know, I, I you know, I just go back to how difficult, um, you know, not necessarily the vulnerability discovery is, but the actual exploitation or proof of concept is. And I think there are, you know, if you handed a company a, a proof of concept that totally works, um, and then, you know, a very detailed description of, of how you're doing it, I think it would be not trivial, but it would be possible in order to describe it in a way where you've hidden exactly, um, or you, I guess you've, you've reduced the importance of, you know, potentially a bug that you could, 
leverage um, on another platform. Right. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so I love talking, I love hearing from you on the latest and greatest from the exploit side of the house in terms of, you know, how we have modern day bug bounty programs and that didn't really exist back in the day. But, you know, I'd really love to pick your brain on, um, you know, we've talked about the exploit development community today, but what was it really like in its heyday in the 90s? I mean, do you have, how have you seen things evolve? And uh, I just really like to hear your thoughts on that, on that evolution. I know you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, uh, manipulating Diablo 2 to get the, to get uh, extra gold. And that's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, you know, during the 90s, um, you know, I was, 17 on a solo mission in my room, you know, just messing around <laughs> um, on, uh, you know, trying to come up with just seeing how these stuff works. It, it really fascinated me that I could send a string, you know, of a certain size with, you know, x86 assembly on the back end of it. And those things would get executed on any computer that I sent it to. Like, yeah, that was just, <laughs> it just, and, and it captivated me. And so, you know, I will say that during the, you know, during the late nineties, early two thousands, it was, it was peanut butter and jelly. I mean, it, I would say the hardest part was I spent, you know, 12 hours a day in soft ice and, um, Jeez. Oh man. I would say the most frustrating <laughs> bit is like soft ice would always crash. And so in order to get to sections that you would want, you would have to set up these like breakpoint chains. And I would spend two or three hours, you know, setting up my breakpoints to get to where I needed to get to. And then, you know, like let's say that you're, you know, you're 20 breakpoints in and then your system crashes. You got to do all that over again. I mean, I have books yeah. of, of just memory addresses of where I was setting stuff and how I, how I was doing my, my breakpoints. And, um, you know, I, I mean, and internet security systems was great and understood. And there were just days where it wasn't working and I just went home. <laughs> Jeez. And, and soft ice was really the heyday of like Windows XP and, you know, pre ASLR and, uh, I, now I only use soft sites very, very briefly. Did they even have automation? Like the ability, like, for example, like, you know, there's like, uh, immunity has Python interpreters like built into it. Did soft ice ever have any automation that you could kind of bake in to help you out? Or this is truly very manual efforts. I would say it's, it was truly a very manual effort. They did have scripts, um, that you could run. And so you, you know, if, 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 you know, like if then type of, type of scripts, but, um, you know, I would say similarly to like when, uh, Ida came out with their, um, debugger, like those things never worked. Like, I, I mean, I would sit there and literally watch like break, <laughs> break points get instructed over and you're like, Oh my God, I'm like flipping my desk over. Uh, and I'm like, how is this not like, how is this condition not met? So, uh, very much manual. Oh. I'm thinking if I ever have a child. I'm going to name them manual. So every time somebody says manual effort, my child will be getting credit for all the work. Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. You're thinking ahead. <laughs> Just trying to set my kid up for success. For yeah. sure. How'd you become CEO? Like, well, my name's manual. <laughs> and this phrase gets used constantly. <laughs> Good name recognition. Fantastic. <laughs> and I'm curious too, Jeff, you know, we're talking about your decades of experience, but how have you seen these trends change with COVID? How much has that impacted the course of uh, basically the experience that you've had? Well, I think, you know, everybody's working from home now and they're probably working from home, um, you know, for probably a great deal longer 
um, until I, I guess everybody feels comfortable with the with a vaccine. Um, but you know, in terms of what's changed, I would say, you know, not necessarily like obviously working from home and and having to deal with like living at work um, type of problems. Um, at order, we're definitely doing things where you know we're starting to get companies that are interested in the attack surface expansion of not necessarily their perimeter, but now they've got, um, you know, people that have always on VPNs in their home network directly connected to an office. And, you know, they have 50 devices and Samsung TVs and kids playing Fortnite on the same network that, you know, not on their, uh, the corporate network, but obviously a, 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 an adjacent network. And so I, I I definitely see businesses getting a little bit scared about that, particularly with things like ransomware and malware. But, you know, also from an attack surface perspective, as more and more people started working from home, you saw companies that started really spinning up infrastructure from a external workforce perspective to facilitate them. So, you know, things like remote desktop on the edge or Citrix uh, VDIs on the edge or, you know, they had a firewall that had VPN capabilities, so they're turning those things on. And uh, I'm going to say that that really increased the attack surface over the last six months. Um, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of companies do it wrong where they're spinning up, you know, uh, vulnerable services, horribly vulnerable services, um, putting it on the edge. And, you know, anybody with a nightly Shodan script is probably losing their mind right now. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> That certainly seems to be the the general conversation is just that there is just so much more opportunity. Unfortunately, not for the blue team, but <laughs> for those that the they're working against there. So it's it is quite terrifying. And I I am curious too. The other consequence of COVID, of course, is that the bottom lines are getting thinner as well as budgets. So I'm curious what your greatest concerns are in terms of how you plan to prioritize spend and headcount while those attack surfaces are shifting um, or it, I mean, it does sound like you feel that that is a major concern. So how does that reflect it in the budget and the way that you're going to prioritize spend? Right. So, I mean, I will say that they're definitely shifting across the board. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm doing from a, um, a information security officer perspective is I'm really looking at tool consolidation. So, you know, people, people are expensive and people's time are expensive. So, if, I mean, if you have the wrong tool in place and that's, you know, I, I always look for like, Hey, this person runs this tool and this tool alone. And you're like, okay, um, <laughs> that's that there's potentially some inefficiencies there. Um, and so definitely looking at tool consolidation. Um, but I'm also, you know, I think much like, like a lot of CISOs, I'm starting to get into that gray area between, you know, what is, you know, what starts affecting a, like the culture of a, of a business. And so, you know, having to answer things like, um, mobile device management, you know, are, do, do we buy cell phones for employees? Do we, you know, try to coax employees to install, a, an MDM on their personal device? Um, you know, all of a sudden those, those security controls start leaking into, you know, personal, or I would say quasi personal devices. Um, so that's really the shift is, is kind of getting, getting more towards the home. And I would say personally, I'm, I'm not doing that, but I'm, in, I'm obviously investigating it. And that's where a lot of businesses are going. Um, but 
I'm really looking forward to uh, tool consolidation and then also any any automation that I can put in place um, to, to to you know handle either you know investigations, breach analysis. Um, and then, you know, obviously detection and protection controls. But Jeff, think of my child manual. How will they get any credit? <laughs> <laughs> Their future has just been crushed in minutes. <laughs> well, so you just, you, uh, manual, he, he sits in Splunk. Um, and yeah, he manages all the tools there in his sim. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, uh, Jeff, I know we talked in an earlier conversation. Um, we talked a, a, about CISO scapegoating and the concept of that and and really what happens in reality. Um, we have a pretty heavy practitioner-based uh, audience who may have experienced uh, an active CISO scapegoating, uh, but I'd really love to hear your thoughts on what would you like to kind of tell a practitioner uh, kind of audience about CISO scapegoating and what they need to know about it? Well, I mean, I will say just from... <sighs> And I'm, I might get in trouble here again. <laughs> but, oh, no. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that uh, that CISOs are still kind of uh, second class executives. And, you know, and that's and that's by virtue of just kind of who do they report into. Right. I mean, it's it's like companies that haven't experienced a breach. Um, you know, they're reporting to uh, the CFO or the, the, um, you know, the general counsel or the legal counsel for the, the organization. Um, you know, some of them are incredibly, you know, and only risk focused. So, you know, I would say from a, you know, from a CISO perspective, um, I, I think organizations are learning, um, typically executive teams and, and, board of directors. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I hear during the CISO conference every year at Black Hat, where it's like, Hey, here's how you speak to your board of directors. And you're like, uh, <laughs> how many are you, I mean, how many of you are actually reporting to your board of directors? And then, you know, at least, you know, in a meaningful way in terms of just saying, Hey, this is what the risks are. And we patched, and this is how many patches that we did. And then that, that that's it. Um, and I would say that that completely changes uh, post breach, and so I, and that kind of gets into the the CISO scapegoating, where you know I I have definitely seen horrible CISOs, you know CISOs that just don't have uh, the experience that they need. Um, they're not you know some aren't technical, and then they're extremely um, I, I would say just not business savvy. Like I've I'm, I've literally. Right. Yeah, and CISO is like crying on my shoulder where it's like, I asked just for five million dollars. And I'm like, well, <laughs> your your business makes 15 million dollars a year. So, I mean, like, that's not realistic, man. You know? um, so it's it's one of those things, too. Like I, when I was doing incident response, CISOs were just so on such shaky ground that it, it was almost like a meme where you go in there and the CISO is, you know, pulling their hairs out and saying, Hey, it's, it's, you know, they didn't give me the budget that I requested. And it was just all these excuses. Um, but it was also came down to like, well, it's just me versus, you know, the Chinese military, you know, it's, it's me versus the entire country of Russia. And, you know, one of the things that I, I would get in trouble with, but I, you know, it definitely level set with the executive team is like, you know, a lot of this stuff was just super simple. You know, like it was, you know, the, the systems weren't patched for years. The, you know, the internal network was, you know, it was, uh, 
It was a nice chewy center to uh, like the perimeter was definitely hardened. But once you got in, it was just like, oh, man, like a nice M&M, a nice. Yeah, a nice M&M, a nice uh, M&M that's been warmed in a car for an hour, you know, uh, where like I would go on engagements. And, and I remember this was in like 2000 and maybe like 14 or something. And I mean, they had OS2 warp. In a couple oh, wow. of places. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I, I walked into their, their little data center and they had like the OS2 warp clock. And I was, just, I just pointed at it. I'm like, what is that thing? And then they had, <laughs> um, this was at a television station. They had a bunch of satellite communication gear and it was infected and, uh, it was running NT4. And oh I, I was like, okay, well, like, how do we get onto that system? And they're like, don't touch that system. And and they were like a they were doing a you know twenty four by seven three sixty five you know satellite feed out of this thing. Jeez, um, just legacy and fragile and risky, huh? Oh, and tons of tons of technical debt and tribal knowledge that were lost. Where it was like we that guy left and don't touch that system. And, like, and oh, so man. that's got to be such a challenge for CISOs <laughs> to inherit that too, right? From a risk perspective and like a risk inheritance, you're, you're kind of inheriting uh, quite a bit on your plate there. Um, do you think also, since we're kind of talking about this is, do you think in the day and age of, uh, breaches being so publicly common, um, that CISO scapegoating is eventually going to kind of dwindle down a little bit and it's going to become a little bit more, um, I guess less commonplace or what are your thoughts on the day? Like how breaches are kind of growing. Um, do you think CISO scapegoating is going to kind of dwindle? I, 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 I hope it does. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I also think that a breach really shows or allows the CISO to show their value to the to the organization and to the business. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, having an executive team find out that they can absolutely trust and that the right decisions are being made, um, you know, I would say really would help that from a CISO scapegoating perspective because, um, you know, they get to find out kind of who they are in that regard. I, awesome. I have to share, Jeff, a meme with you. And when you said it, it's almost a meme, I was like, has Jeff seen this? And I'm going to I'm going to ping it to you, Jeff, because I want to hear your emotional response to this. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm going to describe it for our audience. So there's two images that are stacked on one another. The top one is like a mother playing with her daughter. And then the other daughter looks like they're trying to stay afloat. So the mother that's helping the daughter is the CEO the daughter that's happy and being like held by her mom is the CFO. And then the drowning child is the CIO. And then the second image is a skeleton sitting in a chair underwater and it's labeled CISO. <laughs> but I saw, I think uh, Scrum What tweeted this a little bit back, but I want to hear your thoughts on this, Jeff. I saw the image. I totally agreed with it. I uh, smashed the like button. Um, on that image, <laughs> I, I, it, it was not necessarily, I'm not going to call out any of the companies that I've worked for, but it, there's definitely been occurrences where everything's terrible. And then you walk into the, like the, the, the weekly executive staff meeting and, you know, the stock is up <laughs> and the CEO and the, and the CFO are just like in complete blissful ignorance of what's going on. <laughs> and, uh, you're, you're literally sitting there juggling, you know, chainsaws in the dark, um, oh, you know, trying to keep image. everything afloat. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's terrifying. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm glad that you've seen that because uh, when you something you said evoked that memory in me, and I just that yeah, that was a great meme. Good job, Scrum. What? <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. So uh, one thing I love to do too with uh, you know every guest that we have on here is really just picking their brain and really help educate um, kind of our security practitioner audience too. Uh, what are some like tips and advice you'd give to like the practitioner base on how to make themselves an invaluable asset to their security company or their security organization? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, I would say, you know, re re regardless of position um, is to really keep on top of security issues, trends, um, keeping on top of exploits and, and patches, I think at any level in security is, is incredibly important. Um, and I mean, and, and obviously you don't have to, 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 to look and to do deep dives on all of them, but you know, I, I've definitely been in situations where, you know, somebody says, Hey, have you heard about, you know, so-and-so? And I was like, Oh, well, I actually spent last night, you know, researching that. So absolutely. I've got thoughts on it. Um, and there's also, you know, I would say more occurrences of people saying, Hey, have you heard of, um, you know, X, Y, Z. I mean, I, I remember right when CrowdStrike came out and I would just get questions on like, Hey, Jeff, have you, uh, you know, what's your thoughts on Shady Bear? And I'm like, I have no clue what <laughs> Shady Bear is. Uh, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I would just, absolutely right. Is like, is that that new Pokemon game that I'm hearing about? Um, so. I would say also, you know, making yourself an invaluable asset is also, you know, knowing your limitations and knowing what you don't know. Um, I, I fear that there's a lot of um, like Dunning-Kruger and in, in a way where, um, you know, maybe somebody's reading a Twitter feed or they're, you know, they're, they're, they, they're, they think they know a lot more than everybody else um, initially. And then, you know, once they really start getting into the weeds, once they really start trying to figure out you know, especially as a CISO, like, you know, what, what management thing should I should do? Like what, you know, what business books should I read um, on just how little you do know in context? Awesome. Yeah. Wow. That is such good stuff. Yeah. I, and, you know, Tark does quite a few webinars and talks and I'm often there with him sitting um, in moral support and nothing else I can provide no other value about uh, value there. But um, I see a lot of those kind of questions nitpicking come through where it's really easy to poke holes um, in someone's knowledge, but it's much harder to be the person that's in that chair, right? Um, receiving all that heat. So I think that sort of the stay humble mentality is super important in security. And I think that's really great advice. Absolutely. Speaking of humbling. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. It's probably time for Tark and I to come back now that we've grilled you and we've discovered what kind of man you are, Jeff, <laughs> we okay. have to decide what your lie is. And Tark, I guess I'm going to give you one out. Do you still think, well, for, okay. First of all, Jeff, I should let you say them again to remind our listeners. And then I want, I want to see if Tark has changed his answer at all. All right. All right. So, um, I'll mix them up. Uh, I've been playing guitar since I was 13. I used to do stand-up comedy, and when I was in kindergarten, uh, my house burned down, and uh, the entire school came together. It made me feel really good. You know, um, I really, I'm gonna stick with my answer as unconventional as it is. I feel like 
Uh, Jeff is an expert here at uh, the ruse, and I'm going to feel really bad if, <laughs> if I'm wrong. <laughs> But I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with my answer here. <laughs> it is the most detailed answer. Um, but maybe he knows that he's in her head, and maybe he did that on purpose. Well, and I want and musically inclined, so <laughs> I don't know. That's true. But here's the thing: Mariah is a pop queen. So does she does she know her way around the the guitar? That is my query. Um, oh. I well, I will say and- both Mar- Mariah Carey and uh, huge Taylor Dane fan. Uh, Whitney Houston, all you know, all the Ugh. '90s uh, singers, women, female singers. Oh my gosh, the best! I just watched the David Foster documentary. He didn't, you know, work with Whitney Houston. He worked with, um, or was it? No, he did work with Whitney Houston for the movie, um, the Bodyguard. That was was that Whitney Houston? Am I embarrassing myself? No, that was that was that was the uh, and I will always love you, um, yes. Dolly Parton hit. Yes. Yes, I did not know that until this documentary. Now I feel much more musically inclined. Okay, Jeff, you're really in my head here, man. Um, <laughs> you're too funny for me not to go with the stand-up comic one. Mm-hmm. Mm, I'm Tarek. This is hard. If we're wrong. If we're wrong, I'm I'm gonna side with Tarek here, and we're just gonna look like the the biggest jerks in the world <laughs> if we're wrong. But I'm gonna I'm going all in with you, Tarek. That's my yeah, guess. I promise we're not jerks, but I mean we'll see. <laughs> All right, so that's that. That was the lie uh, for sure. But oh see, gosh. I was trying. Like, it's my first time playing, so I, I wanted you guys to feel like a little bit of empathy. So I'm glad you guys didn't. And then uh, <laughs> at the same time, um, it's kind of a half lie. So, uh, like a funny story. When I was in kindergarten, my mom uh, she was a flight attendant for Eastern Airlines. And she was late to, like, she was working in the airlines and she was late picking me up. And so the teacher had to put me in kind of like this, like after school type of thing. And I didn't like it and cried. Um, and so the teacher asked me like, Hey, Jeff, do you know why your mom's late? And, you know, obviously this is before cell phones. Um, and, and for some reason, like, I don't remember, like obviously back that far, but for some reason I told my teacher that my house burned down. And that uh, we lost everything and all of my toys. And all of a sudden, my teachers kind of rallied together and started a clothing drive for me. And my mom, like my mom picked me up, obviously. And this was like several days later. And my, my, the teachers called to my mom and said, hey, we've got all these clothes for you and stuff because your house burned down. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, oh and so kind of a half, a half truth because it was uh, I was like, oh, man, could I get away with this lie again? You know, 39 <laughs> years later or 38 years later <laughs> or no, sorry, I'm, I'm 39 now. So like 35 years later, I guess. I like that. That's the part of the, the story that is true, though, because that's what we need to hear right now in 2020 is people coming together. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> absolutely. You know, it's a good story. Um, but no, I, I, uh, I definitely like when I um, when I was working at Internet Security Systems and doing the um, vulnerability analysis and exploit stuff. I, I started feeling like I couldn't talk to people and I started having to do more conferences and public speaking. So I pushed myself into stand up comedy for for a while. And uh, yeah, that was fun. It was a good experience. That's awesome. I know so many people in security and just at our, our company, too, that have done improv, too, because I mean, how else to develop thick skin oh, <laughs> than to sure. do with something like that? It's incredible. That's really cool. Well, and, uh, yeah, through, I, Jeff. I've been playing guitar since I was 13, played in a metal oh, band, cool. play a lot of metal oh, music. Oh, my. 
Do you do any Mariah cover, uh, Mariah Carey covers? So, so no, but you know, one of the things that I, I would do, um, I love, I love pop music, right? So I love, you know, the nineties the female singers, of course. Um, you know, I listen to, you know, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys still, and the, the top hits on, on Spotify. But, uh, one of the things that I would do for my solos, cause I, I would, when I played in a band, you know, you had to come up with solos and, uh, and, you know, as lead guitar, it was always one of those things where it's like, okay, well, I can just take the voicing and the melody of the song and then just transcribe it into, you know, part of the solo. And that's, you know, easy stuff. But I would actually take, um, you know, songs like I'll always love you, or I would take, uh, you know, um, can't let go, you know, from Mariah Carey. And I would take the melody there and put it into the solo. And so we were talking metal Ooh. songs that had, you know, Mariah Carey roots. I would also, my bandmates, uh, hated my guts because one of my favorite <laughs> songs of all time, uh, is Kiss from a Rose. And I can literally put Kiss from a Rose in anything. And so we play, we play in this really like hardcore thing and they're like, Jeff, go like make something up or like, and, uh, and it, all of a sudden they just look over at me as I'm like, Jeff, this, this needs to be a YouTube channel. I feel like that uh, this is what the world needs right now. On top of your positive story. We yeah, let's start it. Let's go. With... I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's smash the like button, hit the subscribe, hit the bell. Let's do it. See, you've already got the lingo down. You're ready to go. I'm down. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh my gosh, Jeff, it has been so great chatting with you. Um, you've made us laugh quite a bit, which is supposed to be our job, but you've really, you brought the stand-up comedy to us and we've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for sharing all of your helpful and informative tips here for our audience. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this of course. has been so fun. Yeah, anytime, guys. Like, I, I really enjoyed this. This is this is great. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter, at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.